Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at thegoldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Hi, it's Jonathan Goldhill and welcome back to another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. Today, we're going to be talking legal with Scott Reed. Scott is known as America's legal coach. He's the official Zig Ziglar small business lawyer and a Ziglar legacy certified trainer. And he has over 20 years experience as an attorney. For the last two decades, Scott has been helping business owners, entrepreneurs, coaches, and service providers to shatterproof their businesses and succeed in the professional world. Scott is a firm believer that seeking legal advice doesn't have to be intimidating or expensive if we treat lawyers like primary care doctors instead of ER doctors. Through his subscription-based access plan legal service, Scott is making great strides in shifting that perspective. Scott, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, Jonathan. So I think you might be the first lawyer that I've had on my show, 60 episodes. Um, Some of us have um, allergic reactions uh, to lawyers. And uh, it's, you know, um, the large, largely the the thing you most commonly hear is, well, they charge, you know, 500 or 700 or whatever, maybe in a small town, it's $300 per hour. And, and, you know, while I charge like well over that, they don't ever say that to me. It's somehow the hourly billing thing is kind of, uh, um, it's like a, it's like last, so last century. And it sounds like you've started a business that is focused on um, having people on subscription. So tell us a little bit about uh, you and how you got into where you are today with your access plan. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I like to say that the uh, billable hour is dead. The, other law- the lawyers just don't know it yet. Uh, <laughs> when they figure it out, their lives will get better and they'll be more successful. But the yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm in Denton, Texas. We're just north of Dallas. I've got a practice uh, that focuses on helping business owners with all of their business needs. Uh, I'm going on 17 years uh, at Reblaw and uh, trying to, to disrupt the world of, uh, of legal so that it can better serve uh, business owners, especially small business owners, um, cash is king and you don't want to be handing it all over to lawyers. You want to be investing in your business. And the traditional model, like you discussed, is is not built that way. It's built to line the pockets of lawyers. Every time you call, the clock starts running and money flies out of your pocket. So, hey, if you're a reasonable person, you don't call the lawyer. Why would you want that? Why would you want that experience? 
So quick question for your business, for, for listeners. Um, so you're in Texas. Can you serve me? I'm in California. Or can you serve other listeners there in New York or, or Colorado? You bet. What we do is we would do all of our work uh, from here to home base in Texas. I'm licensed in Texas and Oklahoma. Uh, and then we have other lawyers that we associate with if we need a specific thing in your state. But most of what we do, I like to call it the, the kind of the low hanging fruit. It's the stuff I learned in the first year of law school. It's the basics that most business owners aren't doing because they don't have access to legal services that we focus on, you know, making sure that all the agreements are right, making sure that there are written agreements for everything that you're doing, making sure that you've got trademarks in place, making sure that your intellectual property is good and that you're not using someone else's. It's just some real basic stuff that we've built legal systems for to help our clients stay between those lines. So across the, across the country. Um, tell us a little about your client base. I mean, do you serve business owners that have a thousand employees? Do you serve business owners that have 10 to 15 employees? I mean, um, what's your best, what's your ideal client? So the listeners can, can tune in to what we're saying. Yeah, here. So, so yeah, it's le definitely less than a hundred employees. Um, my ideal client is probably doing, uh, they're probably approaching a half million in revenue. Uh, they've got at least one either employee or they've got some sort of a team. Uh, now that's not, you know, a lot of people use independent contractors and vendors to create a team. So it may not be employee. Um, and I would have told you a few years ago that they all rent space somewhere. They've got commercial space. But two years ago, that, that world changed. And now so many people are working with remote teams that they're in their houses. Um, but it goes from online entrepreneurs that are creating podcasts, YouTube channels, uh, coaching platforms uh, like, our, like, uh, like the Ziggler Corporation. And then we have clients that are um, in construction, doing residential construction, commercial. We have a ton of tradespeople, HVAC, plumbing. Uh, that everyone that's just very focused on um, trying to keep the money that they make um, so that they can reinvest it in other areas and, you know, and then have some fun with their family. Great. So, okay. So good. We've gotten rid of some listeners that maybe think, all right, well, I already have a legal counsel person and we've made zoom uh, tuned in now to another set of listeners. Your clients are very much like mine, maybe a bit smaller um, in terms of approaching 500,000, mine are typically over a million, but let's talk about now um, some things that they need to do to shatterproof their business. What do you mean by shatterproof your business? I assume you mean protect your business from um, lawsuits and things like that. But what is it? What does it mean? And what are the strategies that we're talking about? Yeah, the concept comes from uh, the shatterproof glass that was, like, for instance, that we used in uh, for in the military for gas masks. Uh, originally, it wasn't shatterproof, and if a rock hit it in war, uh, they would crack, break, and the gas would come right through. Once they created shatterproof glass uh, in the 1930s, then the glass would get marked. Um, it wouldn't completely shatter and it would keep the gas out. And so the idea is that and we then brought that home and now it's in our uh, cars. So your windshield is shatterproof. And so I think I see businesses as our money making vehicle and we have this shatterproof windshield. And as the things in business that go wrong, the the unhappy clients, the uh, the vendors, the uh, people that think maybe that you're infringing their trademark. Those things come flying at your windshield. And as they do, they mark it as you're going down the road of business. And then you can come back and fix it when you're done with that trip. It's not an emergency because we've built strong legal systems and structures in our business so that we've avoided the really big problems. And that's what I call shatterproofing.
Gotcha. I mean, it's so important. Uh, one of my early clients going back uh, 20 probably years ago was a vodka manufacturer. And they had spent a lot of money with an intellectual property attorney um, that had become a friend uh, to the owner. And they had spent uh, a lot of money making sure that their trademark was protected because they did identify some other companies that had maybe similar names with different spelling. Um, and that came back to bite them. 15 years uh, later, after running with this manufactured line, they, they had built the business to a seven-figure company. It was doing pretty nicely. They got a lawsuit um, from this company and they went back to their original attorney and that original attorney sort of sort of backed went backwards and said well you know we'll have to do a lot of work to defend all this and so my client was pretty upset felt like he was wrong wrongfully uh dealt with by the attorney in terms of the work what was done do you see this type of stuff happening in um in business where people uh, are given yeah I do see it where they get bad advice. And sometimes uh, sometimes there's not uh, a clear answer to the problem. Sometimes there's, you know, you're making your best judgment at the time. And intellectual property can be a little bit that way. Uh, sometimes there's a risk when you try to protect your intellectual property that you file a trademark application. Uh, and by doing that, you alert uh, the someone else that owns a trademark that thinks that your mark would infringe. For instance, uh, about five years ago, we filed uh, a trademark application. It was for an HVAC company uh, that had a really cool logo, but it was kind of superhero-ish looking. And uh, we got a then we got a response from Warner Brothers saying that we were infringing on their Superman mark, and we you know there was there wasn't a way to to fight them, and we had to back off. They you know they they still it was right to try to protect the mark, but there is that risk. Uh, that when you do it, you could draw attention that you didn't want, which is why I usually advise people that when you start your company, when you first create that brand, that's the time to protect it. Because if you if you file it, the earlier you file it, you're going to have the the time advantage. And then if you did get a letter 10 years in the future, you're going to have a much better stance uh, if you do it when you start. There's That would be what we call an intent to use, Mark. You haven't even used it yet. Mm -hmm. uh, and if it gets declined, great. Now we know that's taken. Let's rebrand now before we've invested years and and you know thousands or uh, you know tens of thousands of dollars on that trademark. That's good. All right, let's back up a little bit and talk more generally about how entrepreneurs should be dealing with their lawyers. You talk about that that we should treat them like primary care providers instead of ER doctors, and I assume that means that we shouldn't just call the lawyer when we're in trouble. We should be having preventative care and that should be part of our plan so it, do i have that right and and if so what does preventative care look like yeah you got it exactly right most most business owners and people in general uh, wait until their proverbial house is on fire and then they go to a lawyer um you know they don't they didn't even they have to go to google and find a lawyer and then go see the lawyer so at this point we're you know 10 days down the road before they've ever got there and then they have to pay a bunch of money to get an answer um, that's just not, that's not efficient. In my opinion, it's not smart. What you need to do instead is identify a business lawyer that understands your industry and understands your vision and your mission, and then can advise you on an ongoing basis. So you set that relationship up. How much is this going to cost me? So I know every time I call you with a question, send you an email, 
This is what I'm going to pay. Uh, so that's understood so that you don't feel scared to ask that question, because I, I like to say having the right information at the right time is often the difference between success and failure. And the right information often comes from legal counsel. You may you may just think it's a legal question. You may think it you just may think it's a business question. But if you run everything through that filter of your business lawyer, then you're going to make much better decisions. So it's the idea of having those regular scheduled appointments where you're having regular conversations with your general counsel. And most businesses are not doing that because they've kind of been locked out of the market because to retain a law firm traditionally is thousands of dollars uh, per month. Um, and we've taken that and flipped it on its head and made it affordable so that we can help more and more small business owners have that right information. So let's take the typical HVAC client that you might have. Mm-hmm. Um, there may be you know, first year in business, let's just say, or maybe they're, you know, they're young in business. Like what are the types of things that they should be turning to their lawyer for in your opinion? Well, they need to, they need to turn to the lawyer for other documentation that they're using when they're going into, let's say it's a residential, you know, what is the, what does their quote form look like? Are they getting permission to start their work? Um, do they have the proper warranty language on their documentation? Mm-hmm. Is it all being signed by, by both the, if it's a resident, both the husband and wife, because in many States, if both husband and wife haven't signed, you can't follow lien, for instance, if they don't pay you. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of things on the residential side and the commercial side, it's a lot of maintenance contracts. And so, we need to make sure that we have really good, strong terms and conditions. And a lot of guys are starting those companies and they're taking their lead, you know, they're having the Gerber entrepreneurial seizure and they're leaving one company and going to start their own so that they can not have to give up money. And they take forms from their former employer or from someone else they know in the industry and just trust that they're right. Well, that's, they might be, but you need to have those reviewed by someone that knows exactly what you're trying to do and what your risks are. The other thing that um, you know they you, we try make sure they do is that they have a good legal enterprise structure um, that you know they they don't they're not running as a sole proprietorship anymore. Um, and most of our clients, we recommend that they have multiple entities. One that would be an operating entity, and that they at least have a holding entity for their assets. It's best not to have them both in the same company. That's very interesting. So, at what point should people start thinking about lawyers? Um, and hiring just specialists. Uh, uh, should they always have someone uh, who's like a quarterback, a general counsel? And should that exactly. general counsel then serve as the gatekeeper or you know, the, the resource for, okay, here you need someone who specializes in employment law. Here you need someone who specializes in intellectual property law. Here you need someone who specializes in contract negotiations or, or you, you, know, you need a contractor, construction lawyer. I mean, what's your perspective on this? Exactly. Yeah. You need to have someone that is, and that's why I use that primary care analogy. You know, in medicine, if you're just not feeling well, but you don't quite know what's wrong, you go to a primary care and they start working on it. And then they send you off to the different specialists to make sure that everything's being tested. And then they, like you said, quarterback that situation. And we do the same thing. Like I do not do patent law, but I do have clients that we sometimes wonder, could we patent this process or thing? And so I have relationships with patent lawyers, and then I'm in the middle of making sure the client understands what's going on and is being treated fairly. And that's, that's kind of how we operate. And so we try, like, we try to keep our service, for instance, where you know, most of our clients are paying us less than 10000 a year uh, for on-demand access 24-7, um, 365. And so we're then able to 
they're by say with that kind of economics savings, they can if we need to go spend money on a specialist, we haven't taken all their all their legal budget. They can still go do that, and then we can try to make it more efficient because we know the right questions to ask and tell the other lawyer uh, where to go and give them information that they're not having to pry out of the client. So I'm interested in understanding what are some of the mistakes that people make, uh, maybe in when they're working with other lawyers. Um, or maybe ways that you've helped your clients avoid some of those mistakes? Yeah, some of the mistakes I see, um, it's not really, most of the clients come to me, they haven't ever worked with a lawyer. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm sometimes the first lawyer they've ever met. Um, they, what they're doing is they're either doing it on their own with the different products online, trying to start their LLC, or they've got a, an accountant and their accountant um with the best of intentions, will set up their LLC for them. Well, the accountant's only concerned about a couple of things. They want you, they want to have a certificate of formation from your state so they can get a tax ID number so you can open a bank account and they can start doing your accounting. That's all they care about. They're not focused on liability protection. Well, if your state happens to care about corporate formalities and you haven't, for instance, held an organizational meeting and you haven't done an operating agreement, you know, do you really have that, that shield that you've just, that you just paid money for? Well, maybe not. So let's make you have to, that's what we end up doing a lot. And we picked up a, a client this week that they had an LLC that they their CPA had done, uh, but they didn't have any of the other documentation. And so my team has already got their operating agreement in place and doing their organizational minutes so that we can clean that up. So that you know, if they if you get audited, for instance, one of the first things the IRS asks for is send us your corporate book, which is your your formation documents, your bylaws or operating agreement, uh, any minutes. Um, they ask for that, and if you don't have it. Then it's really hard for you to say you're a like you're a sub S corporation when you don't have those documents. And so then you've got a tax issue. Same thing in litigation. Well, the first thing they're going to want to see is how you're in this business. Is it really an LLC or corporation or is it a sham? And if it's a sham, then all of your personal assets are at stake. And the whole idea of building this LLC is that we have this shield around us so that the things protect our assets at home, right? Because the whole reason we're in business is you have some other life goal or dream to achieve, and we're taking money out of a business and then living this life that we all that, that you've got a dream for. If you if you if all that's at risk because you didn't do your LLC right, well, that's 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 bad news, and that's one of the biggest mistakes. Uh, that I see. The other is people just aren't, they're doing handshake deals. There's no written agreements. Uh, and that's just a disaster. Not necessarily because you're going to get sued, um, but it's just a, it's a, it's a recipe for losing clients and relationships. If you have a written agreement in place, then you honest people can stay honest because you can go back and tag that base and go, here's what we agreed to. Let's go back together and look at it, refresh our memory. And then Everyone's everyone can be on the same page again. If if you don't have that document to tag, then someone's calling someone else a liar. And I've never seen that work out well. Right. So I want to get I want to get to these like questions you should ask uh, before you sign contracts and maybe experience buyer's remorse. But before we do that, let's just back step a little bit to the minutes. Um, how many companies do a really a good job of keeping minutes if they're small. Uh, and does a single shareholder S-type corporation need to keep minutes? I mean, what are the compliance requirements and what, you know, what are the pitfalls to watch out for? 
Yeah, and that varies state by state. For instance, in Texas, right, Texas recently, uh, the law was changed, and it specifically says that not following those formalities of doing minutes isn't a reason that you can pierce the corporate veil and go take the personal assets. Um, but I still encourage my Texas clients to have an annual meeting, document it. I mean, there's there's some good reasons to do it just from a business standpoint anyway. But then if it just takes away, it takes that ammunition away and it makes you look like you're doing this. This is legit. This, you're treating this like a, a separate entity. And so if your state requires it, then for sure, you need to make sure that you're doing at least the annual ones. Uh, you need to do whatever your operating agreement says. So if you say you're going to hold annual or quarterly meetings, then do it. Um, and you can do those in a tax advantaged way, get with your CPA and figure out the requirements for how you can go have those meetings in Dubai or Vegas or wherever you want to go uh, and write off a portion of those things. But they're just good. To, they're just good things to be doing. But it gives you a clear record uh, if you're ever in litigation or in an IRS audit that you've treated this like a, a separate entity. It is even if your state doesn't require it. I think, you know, I'm a single shareholder S Corp. Um, put together by an accountant who was very derelict in his duties working with me. Um, of course, I won't name names, but uh, uh, I don't think I have an annual operating agreement. I don't think it even spells anything out. Do people like myself need to be concerned if we're just a single person, um, single shareholder corporation, like well, coaches, consultants? Yeah, you, you, the reason you should be concerned uh, is if something happens to you, for, for example, and then you're someone else inherits your business, mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's multiple people, then there's no agreement for how this company works. How do we make decisions? How do we vote? When do we meet? Um, if we want to sell it, how do we sell it? There's just all that stuff supposed to be spelled out in bylaws or an operating agreement. If it's not, it's kind of a recipe for trouble. Also, if you ever want to sell your business, um, not having those documents severely discounts your sale price. Yeah. So, yeah, you want to have it, even if you're a sole person. And again, you can because you can you can go you can have a meeting with yourself wherever you want to have it. Uh, so, you know, a, a big part of the the reason, I think, for having your own business is that you can take a lot of things that would be normal everyday expenses and convert them to legitimate business expenses uh, that then make, actually grosses your income up. So you know, do you be smart and use some of these legal requirements to help you have a good time in life. So don't make, you know, don't, you know, it's not a big sigh. It's like, okay, I get to have a meeting and document it. And the other thing you can do is have your, uh, have your lawyer, your general counsel prepare a unanimous resolution, annual resolution in lieu of a meeting. And that covers it too. So every January or December, your counsel can send you kind of a bullet you know, just kind of a, the bullet points of what has happened in the year. It's very uh, boilerplate, but you sign that every year, put it in your folder, whether it's digital or a binder, and then you've got it if anyone ever wants to look. And you've you've done those steps uh, to make sure that you you are in compliance um, wherever you would want to go. For instance, if your business needs to file as a foreign entity in another location that maybe has different requirements than than your charter state. So it's just a good idea, even if you're a solo guy, uh, like the two of us. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Really interesting. I can I can only imagine how out of compliance most small oh, businesses are and how difficult it must be for them to keep in compliance. Yeah, and we do a lot of catch up minutes where we'll be going five years. You know, more than five years in the past to catch up.
Yeah. I mean, uh, it's a lot for keep people to keep track of. And, uh, you know, in states like California, where the regulations are a bit onerous, certainly yeah. compared to Texas. I know that uh, there's probably often jokes uh, made by Texans against Californians and made by Californians against Texas. But like there's so much compliance in this state of California that it's really difficult for small businesses uh, to to manage all that. It's, you know, some people will joke, hey, it's a full time job managing all this stuff. No, it's, and it's not, a, and it's not really a joke. Uh, it is. And there's a lot of California entrepreneurs that we talk to that are actively looking to move their business to Texas or other places where it's just more friendly. I mean, it's hard enough to run a successful business, yep. but then to have to deal with all that regulation is uh, a mess. If uh, So I, you would just, if, if you're running something in California, I think you just have to have someone helping you with some of that burden. Gotcha. All right. Let's get into this. Uh, you have eight questions that we should ask in order to eliminate signer's remorse. Um, yeah. These are around what types of contracts are we talking about, first of all? Yeah, any kind of contract. So this, you know, you don't have to, if, if you're listening and you're not a business owner, uh, this is this applies to you because everyone is signing contracts uh, all the time. Sometimes they're on uh, the computer and you're not even reading it uh, or it's across the table at a, closing for a house or for a car, but you're always, you're signing contracts all the time. And so the idea is how can we, how can we, how can a, a person without legal training look at a contract and have a better chance of it, of it being a good contract when you sign it? So what, what are these questions? Well, the first one is you want to make sure that you know that the right parties are on the contract. Um, a lot of times, if you read the top of a contract, it's, it'll say this contract or agreement is between party A and party B. Well, you got to make sure that if it's you, that it's got your legal name there. And then the other person that you're doing business with, or if it's a company, that it has the right name, right? It's important that the parties to the contract have uh, the right names on there. And so that's one really easy first step. Mm -hmm. The next step is to make sure if it's a company you're doing business with, that they're actually in business. A lot of companies, uh, corporations, for instance, have not kept up with some of the formalities and their charter has been forfeited. And so they're not really, you're not really doing business with them. So you need to make sure you have the right people in the contract. Okay. Another, another question or area to look at is dates. Right. So what are the dates in this contract? If it's, let's say it's a home, home improvement contract. Well, when is the work going to start? You want that date. Mm -hmm. right? So what you do is you go through that contract and you highlight all the dates. And then you go, is that, can I live with that start date? Can I live with the date where my payments do? Can I live with the date when they're supposed to finish? Know those dates and make sure they are what you agreed to and that they, that they work for you and that they'll make you happy if those dates if you follow those dates and they follow those dates, right? The next thing uh, maybe in, you know, maybe even more important is the dollars. So you want to go through the agreement and look at all of the times where there's dollars mentioned and are they right? You know, is it the right, is it the right money? Right. That's the biggest problem you have in contracts is if you, if you get the numbers wrong, if you sign a contract that's for more money than it's supposed to be, you're, you know, you're stuck. Right. Um, and so you want to make sure the numbers are right. And then again, when do you have to pay it? And are you comfortable? And can you do those things? All right. So by looking at the dates and numbers, we now know what our obligations are and time and money. And can we, can we do that? Are we comfortable doing those things on those dates? And if you are, move forward. 
Uh, the next thing you want to look for is uh, sort of is what I would call a um, a mediation clause. Uh, so how do we settle a conflict, conflict resolution? And that needs to be in the contract. It needs to say that we have to go to mediation before we can go to arbitration or litigation. Because, I mean, I know from experience that like 90% of cases go to mediation resolve. So there's a very high probability you could resolve a dispute without ever having to go to court. Well, if that's not in there, then you have to go to court first and then get a judge decision mediation. By that time, you spend a lot of money. So you want to have that kind of thing in there so that you can control uh, how this thing, how this a dispute gets resolved. Because it's very likely there could be a dispute on a contract. Um, the next question you want to ask is what are the remedies in the contract that often in the contract will say what happens if you default and what happens if they default? And you want those to be clear and you want to be able to live with those things. Those are some examples of the questions that if you if you go through in a, in a systematic way and there's eight questions uh, and follow those eight questions, your chances of having a successful contract are exponential and you're going to not get that dreaded signer's remorse of great. What did I sign? That is really helpful. I think uh, one of the biggest problems that I've seen that has lit my client's hair on fire, having them call an attorney is uh, around construction defects. So uh, a gentleman and, and his company installed a pool. Two years later, the pool and the foundation has, shift, has moved away from the foundation and created maybe a gap between the house and the concrete. And uh, the homeowner is contacting the contractor. Uh, the liability had ended maybe a year earlier, and now they're in litigation. Um, what types of hair on fire stories uh, uh, have you seen that you think would be things that people should be watching out for? Yeah, it's uh, it's the from a business standpoint, it's the things where they've they've overpromised uh, and and then they underperform. Mm. And so you want to in your in your sales presentations, you want to make sure that you're setting the proper expectations and you're not using too much puffery. And then when you get to the agreement that you're being very clear as to what you're not doing, um, it can be more important sometimes to make sure that you set you know, almost disclaimer language that I'm not going to solve this problem. We're not going to do this. You know, this isn't included uh, so that it's very clear that things are included. And then that you, you're very clearly stating what you're going to do and how long you're going to guarantee it uh, in very clear, um, unambiguous language, not legal jargon, but in clear a regular person language so that they uh, everyone understands it but that's where it, it's the it's the over promising and then it's using language that's vague and ambiguous to where there's this question of what does it mean that's where i see our clients getting you know getting into legal trouble and that's when a lot of our clients come in on access members they come in with this problem and it's like how do we solve it and we solve the problem for them the instant problem and then it's like we can help you avoid these problems in the future if you run all this stuff through us instead of you know, Googling the and pulling down a document. Yeah. Do you think still see people doing a lot of stuff on handshakes? Yes. Yeah. So that's an interesting thing. I, I think that uh, if you're really clear and you communicate clearly and you don't over promise and you don't under deliver um, and you stay in communication, seems to me you could probably get by without a legal agreement, but just sort of an understanding that was memorialized in some form of an agreement. But it yeah. seems to me that things go awry 
when the communication is uh, is is not been in place. What's, yeah, what's and I have a course where I where I teach clients, how, teach business owners how to use email to create legal agreements. Mm. Uh, it's not the best way, but sometimes it's the only way, uh, or at least it's a good way to have them, like you said, memorial, memorialize what the deal points are. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you go take it to the lawyer and then they create an agreement from it, but you can keep moving forward. But especially in Texas, I mean, right, we're a bunch of cowboys over here. Everyone's very, you know, my, my word is my bond. If I give you, if I shake your hand on it, I'm going to do it. And I think people have in t- good intentions with that. Um, but as business, the project develops, things change, memories fade, um, and expectations uh, aren't properly remembered. And so, but yeah, you've got to have that written agreement. But yeah, I see a lot of people that are still like, no, nah, it's okay. I don't have to do it. And I even see people in uh, multi-billion dollar businesses, especially online uh, and in coaching business, not using legal agreements. Um, and it just, I, I don't get it. it. It makes my hair on fire. I bet. So I really like what you're, what you're doing, disrupting the status quo through a subscription-based legal service. Uh, I'm assuming that's all you offer is subscription-based. You don't offer the hourly work. Is that correct? Yeah. Or? The only thing we do hourly is if we get involved in litigation, I haven't right. figured out another way to do it. So I, we, we, we really try, really try to avoid it. Uh, and then we do flat fee projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just like, like other business owners, I feel like we should be able to know what, what a project will cost. If I, if I'm wrong and it takes more time than it, than I estimated, I should lose money. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shouldn't cost you more money. Cause like you, <laughs> we started out the show traditionally lawyers can just make it up. They can just spend more time yeah. uh, and make their money back. And so that's just, that's not right. This should be like every other business. And so we'll do flat fee projects a lot where maybe someone's not ready to get married yet and become an access client. We'll do, do a one-off project for them and get that done. That's the kind of the two ways we work. Uh, so we do the access business plan, the business coaching, and then we do estate and asset protection planning. And that's usually on flat fees. Gotcha. I think that's super important. Um, maybe we should talk just a little bit about uh, that's estate and succession type planning type work. Um, tell us what that entails for you and your business. Yeah. So um, everyone uh, should have what I call the first line of defense, a, a will. Everyone should have a will so that if you die, there's a pathway to the courthouse so that someone can settle your estate. Not having that is, is it's kind of irresponsible. You really should have that. Um, going beyond that, then you start getting into efficiencies and how can we make things e- the easiest for our family and make sure that things transition well. It's even more important for business owners, right? You have this thriving business that probably you're very a very important cog in that wheel. And if suddenly you're gone, what happens? Well, you need a succession plan in place a written plan that says what happens if something happens to you. The other thing is that your, uh, your so family. Let, let me ask you a question about that. Let me interrupt. Sorry. Yeah. Exactly. So no supposing uh, uh, I'm a coach, I work with a client um, or I'm a, let's say I'm a consultant or a consultant writes a succession plan. Um, is that a legally binding document? I mean, at what point does it become like, Hey, this was some consultants or coaches idea, or this was, this was the entrepreneur who was working with the consultant or coach and, and he or she documented it, but we never memorialized it. This is not a legal document, some might argue it. So how does the succession plan get viewed at if it's just a document like that? 
There's two sides to that. The, the informal succession plan where maybe you as the founder have just written a document out as guidance for everyone to know this is what I this is how what I would do if something happened to me. Mm-hmm. It's, that's very helpful. It, if you communicated that to your team and to your family, everyone kind of knows that you had a you have a plan. It's not binding, but it's it's a it's a map for them to follow. So it's helpful. Mm-hmm. The next step is that, for instance, if you're in the consulting world, that you find another coach or consultant that you align with and you you come up with a, a plan for if something happens to me, that this is what you're going to do for me and my family to help them transition the business. Mm-hmm. And you are very specific in that plan. And then you're going to do, you know, the other side of that is that you would do that for them. And we've done these fairly detailed plans for especially uh, financial consultants where they'll have someone that can step into that role. And there's already a, a this is how they get paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what they're, you know, it's what they're expected to do. And so that is a written binding contract between those two advisors or consultants. And so you definitely can do that. Another thing to do is set up a buy-sell agreement. And so you could have um, maybe key employees that if something happens to you, they're going to take over. And there's an agreement in place that this is how they would buy the company from your family. Um, you can fund those kinds of things with life insurance. So as a as the founder key employee, you would have a life insurance policy that would go to the company to create the cash that could then go out to your family. All that needs to be done with legally binding agreements. Uh, and it's uh, none of it's fun to talk about because we don't want to talk about that. Um, but it helps uh, team morale if they know that you have spent time putting the plan together so that if something ha- happens to you, the things will be okay. Uh, it helps your family feel secure in their future. So spend some time doing that. You know, that's, we talked about the succession plan, but you also need to have the estate taken care of. You know, most business owners should have some sort of a trust that owns all of their assets so that there's no court getting involved. Because if you have to wait for a court to give someone authority to do something in your business, your business could disappear overnight. We need to be able to make, make payroll. We need to be able to pay vendors. All these things that keep your business going. And if it takes six months to get to a court to make those decisions, it's too late. Gotcha. Good stuff. So you've written a book, The Ultimate Guide to Estate Planning for Beginners. Um, I think you've given us a link, which we can put in the show notes. People can access that book. Is that correct? Yes. And you can also go to um, my website, www.reblaw.com forward slash disrupt. And there'll be a page just for, for our listeners today that they can book a, a 20 minute laser legal coaching session with me. So we can talk about their specific issues if they want to, and then they can download that book. Sounds great. All right. Uh, last question before we wrap up. So you've created this monthly recurring revenue model in your business. So few lawyers have it. I think it makes a lot of sense, right? People have a good idea of what their annual legal costs are going to be. And I'm wondering, how many of your clients have come to you and said, wow, this makes a lot of sense. I want to create a recurring revenue model in my business. Um, it, it certainly makes it more valuable. Are you seeing any of that? And are you, are you helping clients with that? We're seeing a little bit of that. Uh, and it's something that we're going to start actually pushing down through the access clients and coming up with packages where we can help them create that. I, it, it really has changed my life. I bet it has. Um, and I it, bet it's changed uh, the lives of your of your clients, even if you, they're, you're their first lawyer, their perspective on uh, lawyering is going to be very different. Well, and I have like we do Zoom calls with all of our clients uh, 
once, you know, once a month. And they, I look forward to the calls. They look forward to the calls. They call me. Sometimes we don't even talk about anything legal. Um, it's a, just we're having a conversation about what's happening in their life so that I know what's going on. Those things don't happen when lawyers are billing them by the hour. Um, there's this conflict that's just, it's just underneath, it's just underneath the surface all the time of you're charging. I know you're charging me more than you should be. It's not fair. Um, and by eliminating that, we're now have, you know, a, a kind of a peer to peer relationship and a trusted advisor that isn't uh wrecking them over the coals. And it's just, like I said, it, it changed things for me because now people like me um, and want to talk to me, which is a lot more, um, it's just, it's just more fun. Uh, you feel good about yourself. And then, like you said, now our, the business owners have this un, on-demand access to legal services and information. And so it's changed things for them to where they're able to make better decisions. So it's been a, you know, it's a win, win, win. Well, good for you, Scott. Um, I feel the same having switched many years ago from being a consultant to being a coach. Um, it's a flat fee every month. People know what they can expect. Right. And I feel more appreciated. Uh, so, so glad to have you on the show today. We've been talking about legal issues with um, America's legal coach, Scott Reeb. Uh, Scott, they can reach you at reeblaw.com, Scott R. Reeblaw.com, or Scott Reeb, which R-E-I-B.com. We will have all this in the show notes. Folks, thanks for listening. Scott, thanks for having us. Thanks for being on the show today. It was a blast. Thanks, Jonathan. All right. And uh, folks, um, if you like this, uh, share this with others. If you need legal help, uh, reach out to Scott. Um, if you're looking for a coach, uh, give me a call. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review on your podcast li listening app of your choice. Thanks so much. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.